0: If you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of John in chapter 18 and we will be going through verse uh, verse 27 this morning. But before we read the passage, let us pray together. Let's pray. Father, we exalt you. We worship you. We have come now in the time of the service. To open your word and to be instructed and learn. And so we pray that our hearts would be open. Our minds would be, uh, would be open. And by your Holy Spirit you would illumine our minds to understand the truth of your word. We pray God that you would give us strength to apply your word in our own lives. And to live faithfully after you. To enjoy the goodness of your salvation each and every day. And now Lord I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) The title of the message this morning is Eternally Gripped by Christ. And I think that's one of the truths that we see in this text as we we read through it this morning. But uh, without delay, let us read through this passage beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father has given me. Shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him first to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing At the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The High priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, and Jesus answered him, "I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those of who heard. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said." When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. In this text we see on display, we see substitutionary atonement. What that means is we see that. Jesus becomes the sacrifice that pays for the sin of mankind, of humanity. And Jesus becomes that sacrifice because he substitutes himself in the place of all those who would receive God's wrath against their own sin. And so in this text, I want us to wrestle with the personal nature of what Christ does on the cross when he goes to the cross. In order to do that, I I want us to see really the background of what's going on here. Jesus has taken his disciples in verses one and three, and he's gone over the ravine, it says, or through the ravine uh, of the Kidron Valley. And so it's it's, uh, it's dark, it's, it's nighttime. In fact, the word Kidron means dark literally. And what Jesus is doing he's going to the other side of the valley and he's climbing up the ascent and going into the Mount of Olives or going into the olive grove or what's called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as he's going there, we know it's nighttime because verse 3 tells us that Judas leads a band of people with lanterns and torches to come and, uh, and, and to find Jesus. And then we also know that, you know, this time it, it's a full moon that night because that's when Passover happens. We know it's cold because we see later on in the story that there's a fire that's been set, uh, been made in the, in the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas. And so we kind of put all these things together and begin to get a feel of, of what's going on in the midst of the setting. It's a dark night. They're walking by the light of the moon as they go to Gethsemane, as they climb up the Kidron Valley on the other side. And as they get there and begin to pray, this, this story, this narrative begins to unfold. And I want us to consider a question as this narrative begins to unfold. And and that question is simply this. What do we learn about Jesus' arrest that Peter fails to understand? I think there are a few things that we learn. Peter fails to understand first in verses 2 and 4. He fails to understand that Jesus is in control. He forgets that. He fails to comprehend that Jesus is the one that's in control of all things. You know, several weeks ago, uh, me and a couple of guys, a few guys, went on a fishing trip down to Venice, and while we were... Uh, down in Venice fishing we were fishing at the rigs hopping from rig to rig and we'd been out there all day and one of the guys that went on the trip was uh was Ben and it was funny because we're we're in the midst of uh we're in the midst of this uh this chop and the waves coming uh coming at us well l- let me back up and tell you what happened we we get out there we're fishing that morning we're catching a lot of fish and the guy that was kind of our guide he says hey I need to run back in and get some bait so we said okay I guess we'll follow you in. We didn't really want to because we were catching a lot of fish. And so we ended up following him, following him in. And then uh, as we're waiting, he decides he was going to go on home. And so we decided, well, that's not fun. And so we decide we're going to go back out. And so as we're heading back out, the squall line begins to come up and 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 kind of close in. And we thought, well, maybe we can kind of go between and we can make it back out to the rig in time and we'll be fine. And so we're on our way out there. And the waves are getting choppy, and we go from like 20 foot of water to 40 foot of water. And when we do, it kind of, boy, it gets a little bit bigger. And then we go from 40 foot of water into 50 foot of water. And man, the waves are really getting big at this point. They're about four foot waves. And so, you know, we uh, we get out there, we get to the rig that we're about to set up on, the one where we were catching all the fish, we think anyway. And then we decide, you know what, it's going to be really hard for us to connect to that rig. We These waves are too bad, we better... We better go back in, and so we start making our way back in, and we get around the rig and and start making our way. We're maybe maybe 300 yards from that rig, heading back towards shore, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the motor dies on the boat. Now, the one thing you've got to remember is as the boat captain, you never, you never show any sign of weakness or that you've lost control, all right? About that time when the motor dies, there's this, you know, when four foot swells, you, you've got some that are maybe a little bit bigger, and so there's this swell that comes over the front of the boat. And now, Ben was sitting in front of the console on the seat, and when that swell came over the front of the boat, he gets up and walks to the back, and he sits down in the back, <laughs> and, and all this is coming in, and, and I'm still sitting here thinking, all right, Lord, I hope this motor cranks. So I cranked it back up, and it cranked fine. But about that time, an alarm started going off underneath the console. Well, this alarm is just buzzing real loud and it keeps buzzing for it's a minute and a half. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. And so at this time all the guys are looking at me and there's no they're not panicking yet, but it's right underneath the service. They they've got these blank stares as they're looking at me. And I said, "Well, guys, I don't know if the motor's going to burn up or not, but I know one thing. We can't stay here." And so I just gunned it. And we started heading in and about that time, a few minutes after that, the, the alarm goes off and, uh, and, and you know, the water is bailed out of the boat and uh, I turn the bilge pump on and the water goes out and I, I had to remember in the midst of that, just stay calm, know that, that you've got this, you, it's under control and all the guys looked at me and after they thought, well I sure am glad you, you, you had that under control. I thought, if you just knew what was going on in the inside, if you just knew, you'd have been freaking out, you know. (laughs) You know, the point that we see here in the garden, as Jesus is there with his band of disciples, is that Jesus is in control. He's got this. In verse 2, Judas was betraying him. And he knew the place that Jesus had often gone with his disciples. You see what happened. Jesus takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. We learned that from the, the Synoptics. We, we learned that's the name of the garden. He takes them there and he goes there knowing that Judas knows this is the place where Jesus would go with his disciples. Jesus goes to a predictable place re- revealing that, that he, he allows Judas to find them where they are. Jesus also takes the initiative in verse four, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? You know, it 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 speaks to me that Jesus goes out to meet them, that he takes the initiative, he he takes control of the circumstances And as he goes out to meet them, it it kind of makes me flashback to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. You can reference that and look at it later. Jesus says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, and I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let us take note lest we think Jesus loses control over the situation and the circumstances as he's heading to the cross. Let us take note lest we think Jesus loses control over our lives and over the circumstances and situations in our lives. Let us understand this, that Jesus always has a plan and a purpose as we walk through the various trials and circumstances in this life. So Peter fails to understand that Jesus is in control. But not only does he fail to understand Jesus is in control, he fails to understand that Jesus has authority and power over all things. Jesus has authority and power. Look in verse 5. Jesus answered and uh, they answered him. We're looking for Jesus and Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. Twice Jesus advances the conversation asking Whom do you seek? So this is the second point, the second reason, the second thing that we learn about Jesus' arrest that Peter fails to understand. And so you'll see on the slide, it's Jesus has authority and power. So twice, Jesus advances the conversation asking, Whom do you seek? Twice, they answer Jesus we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene and twice he replies, I am he, right? Twice he replies that. According to John, his answer was unexpected. The captors didn't expect what he was going to say in one sense. We, we read verse 5 and we understand that Jesus is saying, here I am. I'm the guy that you're looking for. But in verse 6, we, we realize that Jesus is speaking in a far greater sense. It's clear that Jesus' words are words that are filled with power. In verse 6, he says, I am he, and it says they drew back and fell to the ground. He's spoken of himself in divine language. He shows that the ones who have come to arrest him, that their weapons really have no power. They have nothing that can match against his power and his authority. They fall down at the mention of his name. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, there will be a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not if it will happen. It is a matter of when it will happen. You see, Jesus has authority and power over all things. And we as believers must battle against the temptation to doubt God's faithfulness in all things. God is faithful. He has authority and he has power over all things. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you'll have what? Tribulation, right? But take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying he has authority and power over all things. And in the midst of tribulation, take heart, take courage, because he himself has overcome the world. We can have trust and we can have confidence and we can have faith that he is in control and that he is above all things and he has authority and power over all things. And so get this, in verses 8 and 9, when Jesus permits them to arrest him, it's on one condition. It's conditioned on them letting his disciples go, right? Jesus said, I told you that I'm he. If, if you seek me, let these go their way. In verse 9 gives us the detail. He spoke this because he had said it's the fulfillment of the words in John chapter 17, verse 12. In a high priestly prayer of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Peter fails to understand the third thing. He fails to understand that Jesus must drink the cup from the Father. We see this in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, Simon Peter then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. Now for any of the hunters in the room, I want to ask you to fill in the blank here. When you aim a gun at prey, the thing that you're hunting, you shoot to kill, right? Not to wound. I, I want to submit to you that Peter was swinging this sword to take Malchus' head off. He wasn't trying to slice his ear. He was trying to deliver a deadly blow. You see, Peter's misplaced zeal Reveals his misunderstanding of Christ's mission. Jesus has come to die. He's come to pay the price of sin with his life. And yet Peter is standing here. He's ready to commit murder. In order to stop Jesus from carrying out the mission. That he's come for. He's missed. He's missed. The mission. That Christ has come for. You see the reality is the only. The only way that Jesus will keep and not lose any of his disciples is by drinking the cup of the Father's wrath against sin. Physical swords, physical swords won't win this spiritual battle. And so Jesus tells him, put the sword back into its sheath. Chapter 18, verse 36, as Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm." You see Jesus had to pay the penalty that Peter deserved. He had to pay the penalty that I deserve as a sinner. Jesus Jesus' drinking of the cup of the Father's wrath means he's going to the cross to pay for sin. This is propitiation. He is making a payment for sin. And as sure as he embraces his destiny by gripping the cup to drink in verse 11, so he grips the souls of his disciples for eternity. He says, put the sword away, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? You know, all of, this, all of this directs us to see John's culminating theological point in verse 11. And it's right there in verse 11. Only Jesus' death is sufficient to atone for man's sin. Only Jesus' death pays the eternal price to grant the believer peace with God. There's no peace with God outside of the cross of Christ And we must hear that, and we must understand that this morning. No matter how discouraged you get, know that Christ has an eternal grip on your soul if you're a believer. No matter how dark the valley of Kidron that you're walking through, know that Christ is there. He's got a bright hope in Him for you. No matter how much it seems things are out of control, remember that Christ is in control. No matter what authority might come against you, it can't match the supreme authority and power of Christ. And no matter how bad or big your sin is or was, there's one who has suffered the penalty for sin. He drank the cup of the Father's wrath against mankind's sin so that we might have eternal life. He did it. Not Peter. Not you, not me. We can't do anything to earn this favor from God. So we must learn only Jesus' death can give us peace with God. The second question we need to consider this morning is what do we learn from Peter's failure during Jesus' trial? We see this in the second half of the text from verses 12 through 27. And this is the practical side of Jesus' encounter with the arresting party. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus is arrested. And in verses 19 through 24, he's interrogated. But Peter, three times, denies Christ. We see that kind of bracketed around this interrogation in verses 15 through 18 and then the second and third time we see it in verses 25 through 27 and in so doing when Peter denies Christ he's fulfilling the prophecy that Christ has spoken just a few moments ago in John chapter 13 verse 38 when Jesus answered will you lay down your life for me truly truly I say to you a rooster will not crow until you deny me Three times. Listen, Peter. (laughs) Peter had messed up. Peter had. He had failed miserably. He had succumbed to the unthinkable. Lord, I'll die for you. No, you'll deny me. No, I'll never deny you. Matthew 26, 75 records that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. After he denied Christ. Have you ever failed miserably? I mean, just fell flat on your face. So much so that you didn't see how things could be made right. You know what i found? i found that if we're, if we're open in the midst of our failures, that there can be great opportunity for growth. But if we hang on to them, allow them to weigh us down, if we don't look to Christ for forgiveness and redemption, then we're unable to overcome You know, I think we're reminded of two truths this morning through Peter's failure that will serve us as a great word of encouragement. And the first one is this, that Jesus knows, listen to this, he knows abandonment, rejection, and isolation. Jesus knows abandonment, rejection, and isolation. In verses 15 through 16, we get this odd detail that isn't recorded in the other synoptic Gospels. Um... It's the detail that there's a second disciple with Peter. And he's the one that gets Peter into the door. The other disciple went and spoke with the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And in verses 18 and 25, we find Peter standing around the charcoal fire doing what? Warming himself. He's warming himself with the slaves and the officers. And three different people charged Peter. With being connected to this man Jesus. Aren't you one of his disciples? And three different times. Verse 17, verse 25, and verse 26. Peter says, I am not. You know, there's a contrast between Jesus and Peter. In this section as it unfolds. And the contrast is this. Jesus responds to his captors with with the phrase, I am he. Divine language revealing who he is. But Peter responds to his questioners, I am not. Jesus stands and denies nothing. Peter cowers and denies everything. In one sense, it's, it's amazing that Peter can go from being so bold in his stance for Christ to flat out rejecting and denying him in a matter of moments. I mean, think about it. In John 13, 37, he says, I'll lay down my life for you. In John 18, 10, uh, Peter takes a swing at Malchus and tries to cut his head off. So he's defending Jesus physically to now he's standing by a fire, warming himself and denying that he knows Jesus at all. You know, in one sense, I'm amazed, but in another sense, I'm not. I think we all know this place of Peter all too well. You see, the sword that Peter swings and denials that Peter speaks, they highlight the, the tragic human condition that we all walk in. We're all sinners who take our lives into our own hands and all too often we forsake our trust in God. We operate with our mind set on the will of man and not set upon the work of God. The picture of Peter's failure Causes us to look past Peter and examine our own relationship with Christ. Peter's inability to stand by Christ points us to our own inability to stand for Christ. In many ways. So many ways. To what responsibility has Christ called us? What responsibilities and gifts has, has Christ entrusted to us. Believer, are you championing the, the purpose and the mission of Christ individually in your life? Or are we championing that as a as a congregation here in Baton Rouge? From our deacons engaging in deacon ministry to our Sunday school teachers effectively teaching and and leading Sunday school classes to our home groups and experiencing community together? Brothers and sisters in Christ, are we Are we edifying one another? As we saw last week, this charge to unity in the faith, which becomes the evangelistic appeal to the world that we are in. Are are we using our words to build others up or to tear others down? Are we we giving an effervescent um, witness to the community? I mean, when people in our circle of influence hear us speak about our congregation... Are they drawn to want to come here and and know the intimate fellowship that we have at Crosspoint? I want to encourage us that this is how it, it ought to be. Are we living in presumptuous sin? Are we tolerating sinful habits in our own lives? Listen, are we allowing sin to remain in our lives so that it separates us from the body of Christ? You know as well as I do that when sin enters into our lives and, and remains unchecked, it leads us to a place of isolation where we withdraw from the body and we, we don't want to walk in accountability with others so that when others maybe come to us and, and bring accountability before us, we, we shun them. Have we become isolated From the people of God. When we become isolated. We become weak. Christians at best. You see here's the thing. Jesus knows abandonment. Jesus knows rejection. Jesus knows betrayal. Jesus knows isolation. He knows all these things. As he stands before his accusers. And knows his disciples have left him. And he stands there. But you know, I think the second truth that we learn from Peter's failure, it's a follow-up to the first and it's instructive for us. Because even though Jesus knows abandonment, rejection, isolation, betrayal, all of these things, you know what? Jesus loves us. As simple as that. He knows all of these things and yet he loves us. As serious as Peter's disowning Jesus was, Jesus extended grace and forgiveness to him and he restored Peter to fellowship. You know, one of the ways that we know Jesus loves us is we see it displayed here in this text that in spite of Peter abandoning Jesus in verses 19 through 24, Annas is trying. He's trying to wring something out of Jesus that he can use against him. And in verse 19, the high priest asked him about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus wouldn't give it up on his disciples. He wouldn't even comment. On his disciples. He was protecting them till the end. He wouldn't budge. Even though they've abandoned him, he wouldn't budge. He, then in, in verse 22, he struck. In verse 22, when he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus in the face. It doesn't say in the face, but that's where he struck him. And he says, Is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus. A million thoughts could have gone through his mind. I know it would have gone through my mind if somebody struck me unjustly. With a thought, Jesus could have caused that man's hand to be drawn back withered. With a thought, Jesus could have made that man fall to the ground and die. But yet Jesus looked upon that man with love. He looked upon him with compassion. Jesus looked upon that man As he stood there innocently, yet condemned even before a fair trial. As he stood there powerful, yet appearing to be powerless. As he stood there on his way to death, he was bound, yet he was abandoned and rejected by the world. He's the shepherd whose sheep had fled. He was isolated, dying at the hands of the very ones that he came to save. That's Jesus. And you and I must realize, along with Peter, And every other true convert of Christ. It was my sin. That put him there. On the cross. That led him. To Calvary's hill. To die. To atone. To be the substitute. Atoning for our sin. If this were the end it would be. A sad note, but here's where it all culminates. It all culminates directing us to see John's theological point in verse 14. So look quickly at verse 14. He reminds us of the words of Caiaphas spoken before. It's expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. This is the theological key to the whole second section of the text. You see, Jesus' death becomes the substitution that atones for man's sin. You know what a substitute is. He puts himself in my place. You know, this is the hope that we have in Christ today. Jesus humbly submitted himself to the Father's will in drinking the cup of abandonment, of rejection, of beating, of isolation, of betrayal, all to become the sacrifice in our place. Jesus took my sin, your sin, and he nailed it to the cross. He's borne our reproach. He suffered my shame. He's suffered my isolation. He's suffered my abandonment. He's suffered my rejection. And yet he paid the penalty for my salvation. Jesus has become the substitute in our place. And all who trust this truth are eternally gripped by Christ. Let me ask you this morning, are you eternally gripped by Christ? Is your soul in the grip of his hand? There are three ways I want to challenge you to respond this morning. The first one is this. If you've never believed on Christ for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sin, you can do that today by simply confessing your need for him and acknowledging that he died in your place to pay God's wrath against your sin. Secondly, if you're a believer this morning, the question is, are you living in submission to Christ? Is he in control... Of your life in the sense that you're surrendered to him and you know that he has authority over all things and he's in control of every circumstance and situation in your life. And you're you're confessing that to him daily, calling out, saying that you need him. Is that is that where you are this morning? Thirdly, believer. Are you struggling with abandonment, with isolation? Are you struggling with rejection? Know this, know that Jesus has suffered on your behalf. Know that there's solidarity with Christ. Know that Christ himself has overcome the world. And know this, know that Jesus loves you. Know that he loves you. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful for our atonement. That Christ has become our substitute and he has paid a debt that our lives can never pay. And all the while he has given us wonderful, joyful entrance into the throne room of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made the way for us to have eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to live In such a way that we experience the joy that comes from walking with you in your presence. Strengthen us now, Lord, to respond and to carry out the way that you are convicting us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand this morning?